morning. Welcome again, everyone who's made it. The Lord is good. So this morning, I want to talk about uh, the seven churches in Revelation. Um, the, I believe these warnings there, the address to the church is full of warnings and uh, deep concerns to the church. And But before I want to go there, I want to have a little bit of a few introductory passages so we can get the idea where I'm coming from or where we're going to. Yeah. So we've been sitting a little bit. Why don't we rise to our feet before the Lord this morning? Father in heaven, we worship you. You are our God. You are our King. We humbly come before you this morning. We open your word. And Lord, we pray that your word may speak to our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord God, that the word coming forth may not return void unto you. We pray, O oh Lord, that we get a glimpse this morning how you love your church, that your heart is on your church and on your people. Lord, that you have an anointing in our midst, that you've given us the comforter, that you've given us a way. Lord, we pray that we will get, grab a hold of these truths. We pray, Lord, that we heed to these warnings, that we take this time, Lord, to examine our lives and to look at our lives as you speak to the church this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that your presence may fill this room. We pray, Holy Spirit, that your presence will leave no room for the enemy to distract, to let the cares of this world enter into our minds and our thoughts this morning. We pray, Lord God, for refining fire. We thank you for all that you do, for all your work. We again pray for your presence here among us. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the, the discussion on the church has always been very close to my heart. It is, it is one of the truths in my walk that has set a a foundational stepping stone, realizing the heart of God, of his people, in conjunction with the kingdom message. So, <clears throat> one of the first and foremost truths that I took out of Jesus' address to these churches is the undebatable proof that God is looking and desiring a people and a body of believers that are striving together, that see the oneness, that see that they are the building blocks to make a presence, to develop a presence for the life of God to dwell in the midst through the Holy Spirit. To me, that is undebatable, reading these, these passages. He addresses the churches, the seven churches in, the, in Asia Minor. He does not address individuals. He does not address the fishermen at the sea or the farm at Smyrna or the merchant Ephesus. Or this guy over there, this guy over, all over. I mean, there's a time for individual ministering. But you can see that his heart was to the body, to the church. 
Another thing that is very evident is that Jesus was in the midst of the believers. He is the one that is walking in the midst of the candlesticks. Um, to get some better on, uh, background on that, I would like to start reading with a, with a passage out of Matthew. In, in Matthew 18, Jesus is addressing the function of the church specifically. Right before that, and he addresses taking care of the weaker ones, which he addresses as little ones. However, coming to verse 18, Jesus talks about working out relationships and the power of his, of his church that strives together, that stands together. So I want to get some foundation, what I'm presenting here. I would like for you all to turn to Matthew 18 and we look at, a, at this passage there. Matthew 18, verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. <clears throat> Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall ne neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And I like to, to think here, and I believe it is, it is the power of the church. It is the power of agreeing in Jesus' name. And agreeing is a voluntary individual action that cannot be forced. It is not agreeing at gunpoint or with threats or anything like that. It is agreeing because we believe, because we believe in something. In a church, each person has to individually decide to agree concerning the function of the church according to Scripture. It is, it is the power of agreeing. <clears throat> The fact is that once we're introduced to the gospel, we have consequences either way, whether we agree or not. We're automatically made liable. If we don't agree to be part of an intentional new covenant church, we will reap the consequences in our own life and mostly, most likely in our ch children's life. If we agree to verse 19, according to verse 19, it has to be truthful and with our whole heart. One of the mistakes we can make to another believer in the name of Christ is pretend we agree. To pretend I'm there. Ananias and Sapphira have heartedly agreed to the gospel's demands and were struck dead for attempting to deceive the Holy Spirit. Now, do we for one moment think we'll get by with agreeing half-heartedly? Do we think there'll be no consequences of any kind? Our agreements usually come to fruition by our actions, not by our words. Words are a mere start. When I say I agree, it's a start. Our actions prove our words. I usually say we tend to undermine the importance of the church, of God's people gathering and committing to the cause of the gospel, to the furthering of the kingdom. We tend to undermine it. We look at one another's failures and we say, how can that work? Or we just tend to downplay it in general. 
It's rare that where, where, we, where we can grasp someone taking hold of the importance of these commandments, the power of agreeing, as Jesus said in Matthew. It is, I believe it is important in the eyes of God, we are dealing with his precious purchased possession that has been purchased with the blood of Christ. I want to start, I want to stop these passages here in Matthew 20. He finishes and says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now we have to ask ourselves, is this particular promise true that Christ has given us or no? See, I used to think that when we spontaneously gather together, two or three of us or four or five or even more, and we start a Bible study or prayer group or something like that, that we're, okay, we've gathered in this particular room in the name of Jesus. But that doesn't even match up with the context of this verse. We are talking here about the functioning of a church, of God's people taking the power, the key that he has given us, and functioning as one. And where else in Scripture has just our words put such a power from God on our lives? It is, faith is completed in works of obedience. The works of obedience that we do <clears throat> by agreeing is what puts the blessing of the Lord upon a gathering, a church, a people. It is these acts of obedience, of seeing these commandments and seeing what Christ is intending to do and to be 100% on board and agreeing on it. Not having our Ananias and Sapphira package <clears throat> on the side and thinking we'll exist and prosper in the church among God's people, wherever that may be. Where God's people gather, we're asked to give all. When I say I give this and this much, let it be so. Peter asked me, why, do you, why are you trying to deceive the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit was starting that work. There's four notice, noticeable passages or points in this passage in Matthew. That is to fix and mend broken relationship among the believers as soon as we can. Number two, if we need help, the church should take action. And if that brother or sister is willing to work together, he should be removed and be treated as a heathen. That's Jesus' words. This is how he values his people being one and working together. There is power in agreeing in Jesus' name. It's not to be taken lightly and half-heartedly. It's not a side game or a side time where I will give a small percentage of my time or whatever else I have to offer. It is the power of agreeing in Jesus' name. <clears throat> and number four, where two or three people are gathered in Jesus' name, there will he be in the midst. This is a promise. From humble beginnings to powerful movements, if it's for the sake of Christ, he has promised he will be there in the midst. He has promised his church here that, it, that if we are here because of him, he will be in our midst. This is a precious, precious promise. Where we are gathered in the midst, where we are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst. So when we go into studying these churches in Revelation, these are the points that I want you to have on, on the side and, and think about it. And I will somewhat go through these churches. I will not take them apart. We could have one or two messages on each church. So I'm just going to briefly, we're going to run out of time as it is. Well, one of my favorite point, points still is, when we go through them, it's <clears throat> that it's Jesus' plan for his church to function as a body, as one. The whole kingdom message shines forth in that concept. <clears throat> Think about Psalm 133. Already in the Old Covenant, it says, Behold, 
how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, or for God's people, to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. Psalm 133. What what picture do we gather here? There is a priest standing there, appointed by the Lord God, and there's oil running down his beard, his garment. We get an anointing. We get the, the, the picture of an anointing of power, of a, of a sending forth of an office, of a specific purpose. And the amazing thing is that Jesus has given this key to his church. And it is in the power of his church dwelling together in unity, working together, having, striving for the same purpose, striving for the, for, for the kingdom-minded goal. He finishes and says, It is like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. <clears throat> so now going back to Revelation. It'd probably be a good idea we could follow along. I will do a lot of reading. I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> What's with these Sunday mornings and these truth issues? Maybe too much coffee. Okay, well first we're going to start with the church at Ephesus. It is the loveless church. <clears throat> and he starts to address it in... Uh, Let's start in chapter 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death, heads and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So here I want to pause. To take this verse 1 and just think about it for a few seconds. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands? The lampstands are seven churches. And Christ said he is standing in the midst. If, if we can just fathom that, that we're not just as human beings that are in so much need of a Savior, on our own, doing our own little thing, but that if we function in the Holy Spirit, in love, in the commandments of Christ, that He is standing there in the midst, and in our midst. It is... It is such an amazing concept. He who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is why these warnings here are important. They're not only to show us the importance of God's people being together, but also that we have to function as a people that have been called out as his own. He warns them and rebukes them pretty sharply. This is why a church should not just settle down to preservation mode, but have ears and hearts that are open to the word of God as it leads and directs, as it rebukes, as it reproves in our own life, collectively. If all these churches would have just been in preservation mode, that is just preserving what they had, then the word of God will have never penetrated or would have had none, none effect. But if we have ears and hearts that are open to the word of God, it can move. It can it can move, and and the, the grace of the Lord will be with us as we as we adhere to the, these warnings from the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, it goes on in verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from when you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So, this church seemed above normal on today's standard. Works, labor, patience, did not tolerate sin or evil, tested false apostles. They have tires and labored for his name's sake. But Jesus had one thing against them that had left their first love. And it was not just a suggestion that they should go back to their first love. It was so serious that he was ready to remove their lampstand unless they repent. Now we think we know what love is. But as we look at the warning, it seems to me that they were engaging in a battle, but lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, their first love, who had redeemed them and who it was all about. <clears throat> Remember, if we're gathered in his name, he is there in the midst. And this is a serious warning. We can be busy with all kinds of activities and work, and if we don't have Christ in the midst of it, it's of no value. We can practice our church life diligently. We can practice our traditions. We can do all these things. We can have orderly times together and all. But if we don't have Christ, it's of no value. If the love of Christ is not radiating out of whatever we're trying to do, it's of no value. He said, remember from where you have fallen, repent. And do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand in its place. This is why I take the liberty and say it's of no value. In, 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 in the eyes of Christ. When I, when I look at Scripture, and Scripture refers to love, I like to think of it as the love that can only come from the working of Christ in our lives, from a life that is obedient to the Holy Spirit, if we walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. The love that is after the flesh is first partial. It is, um, it is selfish. It is, uh, if, it, if, it, uh, if it pleases me, then I will love. If it, uh, if it gives me something back, then I will probably love even more. That is kind of the love of the flesh. But the love of the Spirit says, love. Love the brethren. Do good unto all, especially to those of the household of God. There is a different step, a different degree of love that the Holy Spirit gives and that is evident that touches and moves people. A church needs to be not only engaged in existing and upkeeping their doors open, but in building, esteeming one another, building up people. And we discussed that the last week among the brothers. Even looking at all our jobs and all we do, the decisions we make is not oriented around making money and existing. It is in building up one another. It is in Building the body of Christ. It is in building up those that need to be built up. For the functioning of God's church. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the tools that he will use to build this church. It has to be directed by love. 1 Corinthians 13 puts it right to the point. Do I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 
but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It has to be instigated, moved by the Holy Spirit, by the love of Christ. So unless you repent, and not sure, I'm not sure if it means removing the lampstand as a judgment or an individual or the church, but it seems to me, whatever the case, if love is missing in the midst of a church, it's the beginning or in a well on the way of a downward spiral. Because Jesus said, if you do not repent, getting out. Okay, the next church is the church at uh, Smyrna, the persecuted church. Revelation 2.8. The persecuted church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And we will address that on the, on the later, at a later church. So here's a comfort to a church that is striving together and enduring hard times for the sake of Christ. And I know there is some struggling, there is some hard times in our midst. We're going to right now, Brother John mentioned it at the very beginning. And there is also other, we also have some other struggles in our midst. There are some, there are struggles, there are battles in this world. And if we, and if we think as a church we'll not go through battles, we are strongly mistaken. The last thing is what the, is, what the enemy wants is the people of God working together for the advancement of his kingdom because that means he is losing ground. So we will not let it rest. He will, not, he, will, he, will, he will be right there fighting. And maybe we have not lost lives in anything, any of that, but we do, did do some struggles and maybe they were of our own... Um, of our own uh, consequences, what the choices we've made. But nonetheless, I usually say the church is hard work. Where there's relationships, where there, there's a building, it's hard work. And if anyone is sitting in this room that wants to be part of this new society that Christ came to usher in 2,000 years ago and thinks he's going to have an easy ride, He's badly mistaken. You're missing the boat. But it's not an easy ride. Jesus said he wants to be my disciple. Let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. The goal is Christ. It's not an easy road. It's hard work. A marriage is hard work. Raising a family is hard work. If we think we're going to get by as dads or moms without hard work, the consequences will be there in a few years. We've been called to engage in a battle. And if we're not fighting, we're not there. We are, we're not on board. We are at best spectators at a sports game. We struggle and we endure for the sake of Christ and we have this com comforting assurance. He, seer, he sees and hears all our struggles. And the struggle that is happening right now in our midst, one of our sisters is struggling with sickness. He hears and he sees it all. He's walking in the midst and he hears and he sees. 
Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until that, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him say what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. And it's... um, it seems to me that to the persecuted church is a comfort that he's there, he sees, and there will be suffering. Okay. The compromising church. The church at Pergamos. Revelation 2.12. These things say he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you will fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus knew their situation was, they were in the midst of a battleground. And I looked into it a little bit, but not too much, but there were lots of different idols, temples, and all that. It must have been a very much of a battleground state of a church. But he he goes on in 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrines of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, I'm not going to go into trying to figure out exactly it's not 100% sure what the Nicolaitans were, the doctor of the Nicolaitans. And um, we can look at somewhat of the doctrine of Balaam, but what I want to put emphasis here is, is the tolerance of people in the church that promote partic- practices that were in total violation to Scripture or the early church. He said, you have their dose who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have their those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. These were commandments in direct violation to the church, which you spell out in Acts 15. Meet over to idols. And it's a warning to the church to not tolerate ungodly practices among God's people. It's an effect of church life. It is, it's going to bring a church down. This is Jesus' warning again. Again, remember, we're looking at believers agreeing and making, I like to say, an impact in this world for the sake of Christ. So if we have in our midst a violation to the word of God, we cannot, we cannot let it, we cannot let it continue. As he has given the church key that all of us should pursue holiness. And he commands that they need to take care of it. And it starts with in allowing men of depraved conduct and doctrine to enter and remain in the church. There again, I see that he is calling to protect his body, his church. Unless repented of, it will invite the judgment of Christ, severe and irreparable. And it also admires the beauty and usefulness of otherwise an excellent church. Without the heresy without the, the effect, you have a good church, you have an excellent church. But having letting sin dwell in the midst takes away from the witness of the church. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, not someday, quickly, when I fight against them with my sword, with the sword of my mouth. 
And repent is one of the key instructions here. What I see, what I've seen in my life is I've seen believers backslide, and then after a time, they get this idea of maybe I should repent. And it seems to me a lot of times that people have this mentality that they're doing God a big favor and plan on coming back to Him. Something doesn't seem right with that picture. He doesn't need us. It's true He does love us, but He wants a repentant and a genuine heart. See, God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. I want to emphasize that if we feel we've strayed, we need to repent before the Lord. There is no just coming back honky darky before the Lord and here I am. Are you glad to have me back? Yes, there's this whole principle of Father coming out to meet us, but it, it's after we're done, after there's a repented heart. A repented heart sees the wrong, admits the wrong, is remorseful. Sees the depraved state we're in without Christ. So Jesus knew their situation was testing and challenging this, this particular church. And he goes on to say in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This needs to be the character of a person, signs of overcoming and walking victorious life, yet engaged in a battle. So in, in all these things, we have to look at our church, at our contribution, and we have to stand on guard with these warnings. The corrupt church. Church at Hyatira, he starts out, with Revelations 2, 18, these things says, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, commit sexual immorality, and eat things over to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will, give, I will cast her into a sickbed, those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation, lest they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches will know that I am he who surges the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So again, I see Jesus focusing in on another problem that arose in the church, that is defining the purity of the church. This time it's Jezebel, or the spirit of Jezebel. I don't know if it's a particular person or if it was some um, disorder, but or I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a spirit arising among its members. Because Jezebel in the Old Testament was this heathen princess, this first heathen queen, who had been married by, by Ahab. He was king of the northern kingdom of Israel. She was therefore peculiarly fitted to present the influences of the world. And the charge against the first church of the second group is that she tolerated the world with its heathen thoughts and practices. So something must have taken place where men did not take their roles. Maybe. If we compare with Ahab, the weakness that he portrayed is to have a Jezebel take over and push him over and then push her evil agendas. I usually say it takes an Ahab to have a Jezebel. And it is, it is something, again, that the church needs to be on guard with. To have men that are sound in the word of God, to have men that are engaged in, 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 the, in the church, in the gospel, in the kingdom message, striving. And uh, we've seen places in modern times of this example. 
Now I say to you and the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's a, quite a warning to the church, not let the spirit of Jezebel even arise in the church. Here at that church, it's, it's the church of Sardis. Now I did struggle a little bit to call it the dead church, but we'll see later on why. And to the angels of the church in Sardis write, these things say, uh, says he who has the seven stars of Seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. In that church, you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. And again, we, we see Christ introduce himself as the possessor of the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit in the fullness and completeness of his power and operation. To the church that was spiritually then, whose lamp of faith was flickering, almost extinguished, Christ represents himself as having the fullness of spiritual power and the completeness of spiritual gifts. The Spirit is sometimes called the giver of life. With this gift, there is hope even for a dead church. There, so it's another church that poses as a warning to our present-day church. I know your works, that you have a name, but that you're alive, but you are dead. That sounds to me nowadays something like you are Christians or God's people, but where's the evidence? Where is the effectiveness? Where is the power of the Holy Spirit? They were dead. This condition comes when a church loses their inner life. It is easy to assume the character of God's people, to imitate their manners, to use their language, to conform to their habits. It is easier to paint a flower than to grow one. One of the challenges I usually have is, is Christianity an idea to us or is it a life? Is it our life, our livelihood, or is it an idea? We can easily start copying one another, but is that life in us that desires, that sees the need, that sees the battleground, that grieves when when people are lost, that grieves when people are hurting in our midst, that has this, this, this life and this concern that is all the way deep inside of us. It is easier to paint a flower than to grow one, said a guy by the name of Hugh McMillan. <clears throat> How does a church know they're dying? How does a church know their life is going out of them? There's a story of a, of a pastor. I'm not sure if it's an old story. I just ran across it. And he had his midweek Bible studies and scripture studies. Something similar to our Thursday, maybe. And he... He had it on a certain time every week. I'm not sure if he rang a bell or he just had a certain time. And every week he was burdened. The, the congregation did not come, maybe 10%, 15%. So one day, one week he came and no one showed up. So he went on up and, and, and rang the death bell. Someone has died. And everyone in the village got alarmed who died. 
started running out of their homes, started running home from the fields. They came to the parish. Who died? And the pastor looked at them and said, the church is dead. And he resigned and moved out. And this, this simple story just grabbed a hold of me. When do we do we see the signs of death? Do we do we even see him? Do we see it's like a tree? Do we see signs of it that it's dying? Do we see the sign of a dying church? Are we sensitive enough to even recognize the life of God dying out in the midst or in our life? So let's not wait for the death bell. Jesus went on, went on to warn them in, in chapter 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now this is not just to them. This is a word to us. He is walking among us. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore if you will not watch I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And this is the most terrible consequences. If we are not watchful if we're not striking the things which remain, the hour of visitation will be as a thief in the night. Always be ready. It is one of the dangers, dangers of not being engaged, the visitation of the Lord. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk in, with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will, blot out, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church seemed not, did not do that well, but Jesus said, you have a few names. He promised them eternal life if you overcome. <clears throat> the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia. In chapter 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things say he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Wonderful promise. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Just glean of the promises of a church that is walking faithfully. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So here <clears throat> we have a faithful church, but for the second time he addresses, we see putting emphasis and on it says Jews that are Jews that are not. And I see that as putting emphasis in putting emphasis on Judaism and the things of the old covenant rather than Christ. And maybe using manipulative techniques. And I was wondering how does that speak to us today? Because we know very well that God gave commandments in the Old Covenant that Paul commanded to put away. And we come from an, an, a rich background. But maybe when we're pursuing Christ, not everything will be able to stay. And any time we put more emphasis on these things, I believe, if we fall into that danger of disrupting a faithful church or disrupting God, God's people. Anytime we put more emphasis on culture and tradition rather than Christ, it is, it is the time we're treading on dangerous ground as a church. And there was another time in Scripture when we saw that 
very sharp rebuke. And it's in Philippians 3.23. 3 verses 2. Chapter 3 verses 2 to 3. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Beware of those who push circumcision. Dogs. That is a pretty sharp rebuke. For we are the circumcision. Verse 3. Which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And again, like I said, the sobering truth is they were pushing a doctrine that was once right in the old covenant. Now, what does that call us to be? To, to be sharp, to be sensitive to the one who is walking in our midst and to be always alert. Not overreacting, not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and all these things, but to be sharp and seeing when Christ calls us, when he, when he commands us to do something, to not let tradition, to not let old habits, anything like that, even in our personal life, hold us back and even push them. Okay, reading on, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, this church has faithful for the most part, but the greatest message again is to take out the interjection of ideas and ideologies that bring schism into the body or his church. We are together for one purpose, that is for the glory of God, to proclaim Christ and live out his commandments. So may we not be found among those who are at the synagogue of Satan, but be part of the building block that builds the house of God, or dwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.25, that there be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Okay, last one, the lukewarm church, the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.14, and to the angel of the church at Laodiceans, of the Laodiceans write, these things say, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you, you were cold or hot. So then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have not need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuked and chased, and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him. And he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Here is an amazingly strong, strong message. First of all, he has no, he has no use for wishy-washy, lukewarmness. And we can go on what a lukewarmness is, but I don't want, I will not go there today. But here, at the same time, Christ. It seems to me points out to the individuals in the church. Remember, it's. All of us that set the temperature of the church. And he points an invitation to all. Behold, 
I stand at your door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. And then we have the promises of he who does. So what does it take? He instructed them at the, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. And I believe, as I meditated on it, it is a refining working of Christ in our life. It's picking up the cross of Christ. Denying all our personal desires that produce death and to embrace Christ. To, re to be renewed by the transforming of our mind through the word of God as he's working in our life. To surrender him no matter the situation. He knows best. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. We will only have as much of the church that is Christ's blessing as his desire is here in these passages as much as we're able, as we want to give. We will only experience as much to the measure as we want to give. If we never give, we'll never experience. Spectators never get the full experience in a game. It's actually a pretty empty experience versus the, per the people that are in it. We so often look, we also often look at the blessings of Christ, the blessings that he promised in the word of God, but we're not willing to give it up. We're not willing to go there. It's a two-way street, two street with God. He is looking for a pure and spotless bride. When he returns, he wants a pure and spotless bride. Now the question remains, will we be part of it? It means a lot to him. He sent this letter to the churches. He pleaded with them. He wants a pure and spotless bride. So in conclusion, for our admonition, for our for letting us, for having us being instruments or vessels that God can use for building this church or wherever we are, each church in, in Revelation brought his own message. And each of these locations, there were real churches. There were real people there, real situations, just like we have today. They were not just a type or a vision or some kind of revelation. They were real churches. So the warning out of the loveless, loveless churches, we cannot lose focus of Christ and the love of Christ in our midst. The persecuted church is to be rich in Christ, even if tribulation or poverty is present in a church. It doesn't compare to the riches of Christ richness of Christ. He sees our hurts, our grievances. He is preparing and refining us in the likeness of his glory, into the likeness of his glory. The compromising church should be spotless from the world and to deal with corruption in the church if it arises. To be always ready to repent and seek God in these cases. The corrupt church should stay pure from corruption, corruption from false teachings and to seek sound doctrine. To, to maintain God's order in the church. The dead church to be alert at all times when spiritual death, death takes over a church. Where there is no life-giving hope radiating from our midst. Christ is the only solution that will restore before it's too late. The faithful church to stay faithful to Christ and his teachings above all else. Is a culture, tradition, or something we hold on to. Let Christ and his kingdom take preeminence. The lukewarm church, God wants his people wholeheartedly engaged in his kingdom. He has no room for an menial Christianity. He will spew it out, spit it out. He has no room for spectators in a church or pew warmers. He wants a people that is engaged and intentional. So may these words speak to us as the Holy Spirit spoke to the church through revelation. Jesus is still the same 
desiring a people that is totally devoted to him, to his cause. As we have this short time to live here, may we choose wisely. May we redeem the time that is given us. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father God, we pray that the warning, Lord Jesus, who is walking among the candlesticks, Lord, that you will speak and that we will hear and heed your warning, the desire that you have for your church, for your people, for the building of your church, as you have promised that you will build and that the gates of hell will not prevail. Lord, we pray that we can come to you, come to the foot of the cross, come to you, Lord, and say, here I am to be vessels of honor and not of dishonor. Lord, we pray that you will give us this vision of your church here in this earth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.